0: listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. From time to time when I'm shopping, I will see a kid have a complete meltdown. Maybe they're tired or hungry or bored, or maybe they just really, really want that toy that their parent has said they can't have. But for whatever the reason, they're done, and they express their feelings with tears, loud cries, and flailing limbs. And usually when I witness this sort of meltdown in public, one of my main thoughts is, wow, I really wish it was still socially acceptable for me to do that. Because I still feel like that sometimes, done, at the end of my rope. And I wonder if I might just feel a lot better if instead of using the more adult coping mechanisms the world has insisted I develop, I just had a full-on meltdown on the floor, dusted myself off, and carried on. I wonder about it, but I have never had the courage to test it out, in public anyway. In our reading from James, we learn that wisdom that comes from God and not the world will lead to mature behavior, and that the same is true if we decide to be friends with God instead of the world. So perhaps it's not that I'm afraid to see what will happen if I have a public meltdown. Perhaps I'm actually a wise friend of God. This morning I was preaching at a church that I attended when I was 17. And I haven't been back there since. And so it was a little bit disconcerting to imagine a group of people who, if they remembered me at all, only remembered 17-year-old me. I think I might have been a lot to take at 17. But I want to like, think that I have grown and matured since then. But that chance to go back and see people who knew me when I was a lot younger has had me thinking a lot about growth and maturity this week. I also this week reread a series of sermons I wrote on the book of James about 15 years ago, thinking I could save a little time and recycle some things, and I couldn't. I have changed a whole lot since then. Um, you know, feel free to thank me after the service that my average sermon now clocks in at about 14 minutes, not 45. Today's lengthy passage from James and our gospel reading from Mark both contain themes of wisdom, growth, and understanding. James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? And Mark tells us yet another story of Jesus trying to teach the disciples and the disciples not understanding what he is trying to tell them. Is it wisdom that keeps me from throwing myself on the grocery store floor crying, I have had a horrible day and they don't have the kind of chips I like, why? I don't know, maybe. Or maybe I don't have temper tantrums in grocery stores because I've found other ways to deal with those feelings. Because as cathartic as screaming in a grocery store might be, I can also just log into my social media accounts and update my status. I can post my temper tantrum online and get instant gratification. I will get likes and kind comments. And that status, my Facebook status, it will determine my mood. In our gospel reading, the disciples are also discussing how their status will affect them. Not their Facebook status, of course, but their status in the new kingdom that Jesus is going to bring about. Jesus and the disciples are traveling through Galilee, and Jesus is explaining to them that he is going to be betrayed, die, and three days later he will rise again. And he isn't speaking in riddles or parables this time, he's laying out the facts as clearly as he can. And they still don't get it. And they argue about which one of them will have the most privileged positions in the kingdom. Jesus is trying to teach them what true greatness looks like in the counter-cultural kingdom he has come to bring about. He is beginning to challenge their notions of greatness. Of what kind of Messiah he is. Of what kind of kingdom he has come to usher in. He is teaching them about how this new kingdom will be established and extended. These are challenging teachings, and the disciples don't get it. Years later, the people who James is writing to still haven't fully grasped it, and when I look around the world today and in my own heart, I don't think we've fully grasped them either. Now, although it's not always the case, on this day, the disciples are afraid to ask Jesus questions, so they argue about status, about which one of them is the greatest instead. Do you ever do this? You encounter something troubling, and rather than deal with it directly, you change the subject. Or you hear something you don't understand, but you're afraid to ask a question, possibly because you don't want to look dumb in front of someone you admire, possibly because you're afraid to hear what the answer to your question might be. Just this week, I heard the story of a person who'd lived for over a decade as if they had HIV-AIDS, because they were too afraid to go to a doctor and find out if they actually did that was too scary. I also talked to someone who, when faced with a serious problem, will quickly and subconsciously scan the situation for the piece they feel most comfortable with and focus on that exclusively. Their boat is sinking and the latch holding the cabin door in place is coming loose. Time to bail water or jump ship? No, it's time to find a screwdriver and fix the latch. Maybe it's easier to argue about who will be greatest in the new kingdom Jesus has come to bring about other than to think about all of the things that will happen in order to establish that kingdom, including the death of someone they love. At the end of the day, Jesus and the disciples are inside a house, and Jesus asks them what they've been arguing about on the road, and they are silent. This is the silence of shame, the silence of a kid who's got their hand caught in the cookie jar. It seems like the disciples know that they should be embarrassed about arguing about their relative status, even if they might not be able to fully articulate why that is. Their silence seems to indicate that they know their talk of greatness is out of step with who Jesus is, where he is going, and where he wants to take them. When they argued about who was the greatest, they were thinking about worldly categories of greatness. They were still thinking as the world thinks, valuing what the world values. We can see this in the fact that they're setting themselves up for greatness, most likely through self-promotion. Presumably, when they're arguing about greatness, they're setting each one of themselves up as the greatest. It's not clear, but I suspect that the argument on the road didn't look like Matthew arguing passionately that Peter was the greatest and Peter saying, no, 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 Matthew, you're definitely the greatest. I think it looked more like boasting and self-promotion. And what felt right? and natural as they were walking during the day feels uncomfortable when Jesus questions them about it and they fall silent. Jesus doesn't chastise or rebuke them, rather he continues to teach them about his definition of greatness, a greatness that is not reflective of the world's values. In the world's eyes, greatness is often determined by how high up you are on the chain of command. If you have more people serving you than you have to serve, you are on the road to greatness. If you don't need to serve anyone and everyone is required to serve you, you have achieved true worldly greatness. But Jesus says that in his kingdom, that order is reversed and greatness is determined by how many people you serve. Greatness is shown in humble, self-sacrificial service to others. James will put this in the context of a binary. You can either be friends with God or the world, not both. You can either choose earthly wisdom or the wisdom that comes from above, not both. Earthly wisdom leads to envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and wickedness of every kind. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. The disciples fall silent at Jesus' question. And then Jesus takes a child from the margins of the group and moves that child not only to the center, but into his arms as well. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but the one who sent me. Three years ago, when Jamie preached on this passage, he noted that A child in that world had no status, no rights, really no claim on a role until they hit about, you know, hit age 13 when they moved into adulthood as sons and daughters of the Torah. Yet Jesus takes the statusless child, property of the parents, and says, treat this child with dignity. Welcome this child in its full humanity. And when you do that, you are welcoming me. And not only me, but the God who sent me. Live that way, do that, See people that way, and the lie of selfish ambition and self-absorbed striving is unveiled. I think I have heard this part of the story and seen images of a gentle, blonde Jesus surrounded by rosy-cheeked children so many times that it's easy for me to just gloss over this story. Jesus loves sweet, obedient children. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I try to do my best to behave like one. I've heard this so many times that it doesn't have a lot of impact anymore. And so this week, I was trying to imagine the story from a few different angles to see if it might have anything new to teach me. I would, for example, love to know what this experience was like for the child in question. One minute, you're playing quietly in the corner, and the next minute, your parent's house guest has picked you up and plunked you on his lap in front of all the surrounded adults. I mean, what did that feel like? Last week at our 4 p.m. service, Johnny was telling this story, and he was lovingly holding his son throughout his whole talk, and then Johnny suggested that maybe Jesus didn't just hold that child lovingly, but also gave him a noogie, and that was a spin on the story I had never heard before, (laughs) and that is part of what got me thinking about this kid's actual experience in this story, not just as a passive object in an object lesson for our benefit. Now, what if, what if the child wasn't playing peaceably in the corner? What if the reason Jesus picked up the child was because the child had started to throw a full-on temper tantrum and it distracted Jesus? What if the child Jesus has chosen as an illustration of greatness is actually a sobbing, snotty-nosed kid mid-meltdown? Now, what does that do to our understanding of the story? Does it perhaps say to the disciples that they don't have to get stuck in a shame cycle or worry about asking foolish questions of Jesus because greatness can sometimes look like a bit of a mess? Does it open up an invitation to us to realize that what Jesus is calling the disciples to, and by extension each one of us, is full participation? It's a call to bring all of who we are and not just the nice, well-behaved bits. Does it help us to recognize that, well, we probably shouldn't throw temper tantrums in grocery stores? We also shouldn't push past the thoughts and feelings that make us uncomfortable. We don't need to repress them or be afraid to bring them to Jesus. Maybe. I hope so. It helped me think about those things this week. And it was also helpful to be chewing on those ideas from Mark while also reading James's call to maturity by making wise choices. Because when it comes down to it, I don't think I actually want to throw temper tantrums in public. I like to think I have matured past that type of behavior. But I also want to find ways to healthily acknowledge the sorts of feelings that could lead to a public meltdown, to honor them and not just feel embarrassed about them or repress them. That's really what I'm looking for. I know I'm not likely to get this on the first try, and I know I'm in good company there. The people James is writing to and the disciples usually follow this pattern of trial and error and error, as do we all. In the next chapter of Mark, the disciples will turn away little children who are being brought to Jesus, and James and John, still focused on earthly status, will pull Jesus aside to see if they can sit at his right and left hands. Even with Jesus' patient and consistent teaching, it's hard for the disciples to let go of their worldly paradigm— It's hard for them to begin to think and act differently than they have been taught to think and act their entire lives. I do believe that some of Jesus' message is starting to sink in, but it is sinking in very, very slowly. And it will result in slow change, not instantaneous transformation, which I also find encouraging. Jesus is trying to tell the disciples, and by extension, each one of us— To welcome those who do not have status in our culture. People who, like the child on his lap, have no status, nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the party. Why should we waste our time on people like that? Because in God's kingdom, all are valued and all are valuable. And that goes for each one of us. Later, Jesus will tell us not only to welcome children, but to be like children. And when Jesus is calling us to be like a child, he doesn't just mean the nice bits of being a child. Jesus is calling all of us. The quarreling, squabbling versions of us that James is finding so frustrating, the continually missing the point and wondering who is going to be the most important bits of us, the too afraid to ask tough questions bits of us. Jesus welcomes all of us, sees us, loves us, embraces us. And may we learn to do the same for ourselves and for each other. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.